Good morning. After that abide with me song, I don't really know that there's any need for preaching. Um, to really die happy right now, so I really appreciated that. Um, please turn with me to John 15. And I know I just said to turn, but uh, please pray with me before we begin. Father, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. As you're turning to John 15, I'm going to read from Psalm 80, verses 7 through 13. Uh, In this passage, Asaph uses a common metaphor to describe Israel. He said, Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove the nations out and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the ground, filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. Why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? The boar from the forest ravages it and all that moves in the field feed on it. That's now the the poetic imagery there is uh, probably not too hard to catch on with. God, God brought this little vine out of Egypt, uh, Israel, and planted it in the land of Canaan. It flourished for a while, but because of the sin of the vine, God broke down the protection of his vineyard. God punished Israel with her enemies uh, attacking her uh, and plundering her. We see this also, similar metaphor in Isaiah 5 and Jeremiah 2 and other places. If you were talking about the vine in Jesus' day, every single person in Israel would know who you're talking about. You know, if I drew a political cartoon with an eagle on it, everybody would know that that was the United States. Um, And of course, Jesus, other places in his teaching, employed the metaphor as well. He told the parable of the vineyard where Israel's the vineyard and but the, the vineyard keepers, who were the religious leaders, rejected God's oversight of the vineyard, wanted to steal Jesus' inheritance. Uh, we, need to under, we need to understand this in order to properly hear John 15. We'll start at verse 1. Jesus said, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered thrown into the fire, and burned. Jesus told this to his disciples after the, the Last Supper. Um, this, this certainly caused a great deal of discomfort with the disciples. This is the kind of statement that Jesus would make that would make his enemies want to kill him and make all his friends get really, really nervous. This would be like me standing up at a baseball game before the national anthem and 
trying to distract everybody's attention from the flag and saying, hey, 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 hold on. I am America. Um, <laughs> probably get more than one can of beer thrown at me. Um, the disciples believed, based on scripture, that they were part of the vine because they were Israelites. God clearly says that he brought a vine out of Egypt. That's Israel. So if you have Jacob's blood flowing through your veins, or if you have been circumcised and have been made a part of the nation of Israel, you are part of this great, glorious vine. And yet, Jesus says, yes, but really, I'm the true vine. He just undercut their whole self-conception as the people of God. This is not fun news to hear for them. Then he tells his disciples, you are part of the vine because you believe in me. If you ever stop believing in me, you aren't part of the vine anymore, and you're going to be thrown into the fire. This is a doctrine about which the scripture is very clear. The Pharisees missed it, but Jesus and the apostles taught it boldly and clearly. And I'm going to try to unpack it today. Uh, here's the outline for the sermon today. Jesus is the true vine, and so we'll look at this reality in three parts. Jesus is the faithful remnant of Israel. God narrowed down the offspring of Abraham until he was left with one man <clears throat> who truly knew and obeyed God. Jesus is the resurrected Israel. In Jesus, God is rebuilding the people of God. And lastly, the only division that ultimately matters in life is whether you are inside or outside of Christ. So first, Jesus is the faithful remnant of Israel. The Bible records for us in Exodus 32, you can turn there if you want, how around uh, 1400 or yeah, 1450 years before Christ, God had made a covenant with Israel. As you know, Israel's responsibilities to God were laid out in the Ten Commandments. And at the very moment that this covenant was being made, however, Israel was violating it. The covenant was over as soon as it began. As Moses was receiving the law, Israel was worshiping a golden calf. Moses came down Mount Sinai and smashed the Ten Commandments. Now, can you imagine the just anger of God? Let's say, uh, imagine that your uh, daughter just got married and you're enjoying the, the reception that you paid for. Uh, there's a problem, though. You can't find the groom anywhere, and so you volunteer to go look for him, and you find him wrapped up in the arms of one of the bridesmaids. Israel's situation was even more shocking. They had just promised to worship Yahweh alone and couldn't even make it through the day without being unfaithful. God told Moses, I've seen this people. This is verse 9. Exodus 32, verse 9, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation out of you. At this point, <clears throat> the only one who hadn't taken part in the golden calf incident was Moses. God offers to start over with the one man who is still in covenant with him. The ever-humble Moses intercedes for the people, asking God to forgive them. And God freely, God freely chooses to take all of Israel to be his people again. He creates a new set of tablets, renewing the covenant. For, for our purposes today, though, uh, we want to take away the fact that God had the right to start the nation over. He had the right to choose that one man who was faithful to him. 
Now turn with me to 1 Kings 19. Fast forward about 600 years in our history. Uh, Elijah has just had his, uh, this major confrontation with the prophets of Baal. God has shown up, and now 450 of them have died, have been executed. And Elijah's rejoicing, and he's probably thinking, yes, this is restoration time. God is going to keep his promises. Israel is going to be faithful now. And then he gets this message from Jezebel saying, I'm going to kill you. And so with divine assistance, Elijah flees to Mount Sinai. So he's going back to the place the law was given and has an interesting conversation with God. God says in uh, 1 Kings 19, verse 9, uh, what are you doing here, Elijah? I think God knows what Elijah, that Elijah has something very specific in mind in returning to the mountain where God gave the law. I believe that Elijah desires for God to make the same offer to him that he once made to Moses. He wants God to see that he is the only one left and to start over completely, making a new nation out of Elijah. Elijah responds to God's question in verse 10. I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I... Even I only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. I'm the only one left. I'm the only one in covenant with you anymore. God asks him twice while he's there, and Elijah repeats his statement again. And God does not make the same offer to him as he did to Moses. And he seems to explain why. Uh, the answer seems to be, you're not the only one. Uh, verse 18, I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed the knee to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So he makes this offer to Moses. As I understand it, I think Elijah wants the same offer, but God does not make it with him. Fast forward 400 years. At this point, through judgment for sin, Israel has been spread among the nations, and now a very small remnant has been brought back to Israel. But not even this small band of, of returned exiles are all Israel, are all faithfully in covenant with the Lord. Um, God told Malachi that the, the faithful remnant was the few who feared the Lord and honored his name. The faithful remnant was super tiny at this point. So out of this small band, it was even smaller. They could, the number of people who could still claim God's promises, it wasn't the rest of the nation who was unbelieving. It was within those Jews who still loved God that God would bless the nations and accomplish his promises to Abraham. And then fast forward 450 years. Jesus came to take up Israel's mission to bless the nations. Israel was given a mission that it could not fulfill. The law itself proved that the nation of Israel was unable to be the people God wanted them to be. Israel, like us, was sinful. They couldn't bless the nations. They couldn't even keep God's covenant. Finally, God shows us what Israel's whole sad history was really about. Remember what Jesus told the Jews, John 5:39. you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Israel's history doesn't testify about Israel, but about Jesus. 
You see, that is how the New Testament writers applied verses about Israel to Jesus. Matthew quotes Hosea, out of Egypt I called my son. Well, who is that? Is that Israel or is that Jesus? Well, it's both, but it's ultimately Jesus. Jesus is God's true people coming out of Egypt. He passes through the Jordan River at his baptism. He goes to conquer the promised land by preaching the good news of the kingdom. Then, taking on himself the guilt of his people, Jesus goes into exile outside of Jerusalem, being handed over to the Gentile persecutors to die. God established through the events of his life that Jesus is the true Israel, the true vine. When Jesus died on the cross, he didn't die as a decent fellow like Moses, who was flawed but generally faithful to the Father. He died as the only Israelite who was truly, perfectly faithful to God. He was the only one. In the Garden of Gethsemane, only Jesus was everything God demanded of his people. He was the only one who was sinless, remaining faithful in the face of death. It was important that all of Jesus' followers ran away. God had whittled down his people until only one perfectly faithful man was left. He was the only remnant of God's people. And then God crushed him. Abraham's offspring finally died to bless the nations on that day. So the cross was God's people, Jesus dying for the nations. And when Jesus rose from the dead, Israel resurrected also. How do we know this? Well, there are quite a few places that teach this. Our first hint that this is happening is when Jesus calls the, the 12 disciples to follow him. Um, he's rebuilding the 12 tribes. He's making preparation for after his resurrection. One of the more helpful texts is Acts 15, if you want to turn there. Paul and Barnabas have been preaching the gospel to Gentiles, and when the Gentiles believe, they have just been baptizing them and making them Christians. And, and some Jewish Christians are confused by this, and they want to know, you know, isn't Jesus the Jewish Messiah? And what they would like is for Paul and the apostles as they go out to make all these Gentiles Jews, and then for the Jews to become Christians. It's not that hard of a process. You know, just add another ceremony into the whole thing. So the apostles and elders get together in Jerusalem to figure out if a, if a Gentile can be a Christian or if only Jews can be Christians. The decisive point in this council occurs when Peter explains how God gave the Holy Spirit to Gentiles when they believed. And then Paul and Barnabas confirm Peter with their own testimonies of, of what happened on their missionary journeys. James, Jesus' brother, spoke up with the decisive judgment. Verse 13, Acts 15, 13. Brothers, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this, as it is written. Now pay attention here. So here's how James interprets the prophets. After this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Here he's quoting. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things, things known from long ago. David's kingdom needed to be restored. In the, pro in the prophets, God had promised restoration since he punished Judah and Israel. Um, 
And so the apostles were waiting for this. Once they saw that God was, what God was doing among the Gentiles, the, the apostles were all in agreement that this was the restoration of Israel. It was not a matter of bringing back every single person with Abraham's blood uh, into is, the, nation, the physical location of Israel. The restoration of Israel was happening and is happening today as people, whether Jew or Gentile, become part of Jesus, who is the true vine. James saw the Gentiles becoming Christians and said, Praise be to God. Israel is being rebuilt and restored. The, t- the tent of David ha- is standing back up finally. Finally, James understands this mysterious phrase in Amos, the Gentiles who bear my name. Without the work of Jesus, having a room full of mostly Gentiles who bear the name of, of Yahweh would be a contradiction. It would be an impossibility. In the death of Jesus, God's people had died. In his resurrection, God's people were recreated. Uh, we see this again in Ephesians 2, if you want to turn there. So, at this point, you might be saying, if this is at all new to you, uh, you know, preacher, are you telling me I'm part of Israel? Yes, yes I am. And so is God through the Apostle Paul. Look at verse 12 of Ephesians 2. Paul says to the Gentiles, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Paul says very clearly that you weren't, that when you weren't in Christ, you were not part of Israel and the covenant of promises, which means that now you are part of Israel. Verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near. Near to what? Uh, Based on verse 12, near to God and part of his people. We've been brought near, he says, by the blood of Christ. Verse 14, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Paul there says uh, he's made us both one. Who is us? That's Jews and Gentiles. There is no distinction in Christ. They're both one. There is one Israel of God. It is, all, it is all people who are joined. Where? Where are they joined? They're joined in his flesh. We are one because we are in Jesus. We are in the vine. There are lots of other amazing things here, but, but skip down to verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Did you catch that? We are fellow citizens. We are part of the same people of God. You are attached to the vine, therefore you are part of the true Israel. So what we have, as a great commission is going forth, is the true Israel growing and growing and growing. The church, uh, because it is in Jesus, can be called, as Paul says, the Israel of God. We are the new covenant temple that is being built with living stones, uh, growing ever larger every day. There is no way in our time to cover all the implications of saying that those in Jesus are the true Israel, but Paul sums it up really well in 2 Corinthians 1.20, for all the promises of God find their yes in him, that is in Jesus. There are not Jewish promises, and there are not Gentile promises. All there is in the Bible are promises intended for Jesus Christ. And no one anywhere has a share of those promises who is not in Christ. 
In Galatians, Paul explains that the promises were all along intended for a single recipient, Jesus Christ. Galatians 3.16, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, plural, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. There is no one in the world who can point to their blood or to a ritual or to to their own obedience to claim that they have a part in the promises made to Abraham. Every promise of God was intended to be given directly to Jesus Christ at his resurrection. The good news is, of course, that he gives those promises then to all of his friends, and we are his friends. So we have the promises too. You, in Jesus, are also the promised seed of Abraham. Maybe you're tracking with all this stuff and the the true vine and Christ being the true Israel and us being part of Israel, but you ask, you know, what about the Israel that continued to exist in Paul's day? And what about the nation today that shares the same name? Paul argues in Romans 9, 10, and 11 for everything I've said here. He says that the promises of God were always meant for Jesus, uh, for the promised offspring, and through him, everyone who believes in him. And he describes Israel, similar like we've talked about with the vine, as an olive tree that has been uh, cut down to the ground, and then a single shoot, who is Jesus, growing up, and then if you want to be part of this olive tree, you get grafted into Jesus. Paul believes this and taught it in all his writings, but he and his hearers were still left with one issue, which I think should trouble us as well. Okay, if I accept that the true Israel is in Christ then how come so many Jews have been unbelieving? Why should all the nations enjoy the blessings of Abraham come through Christ, and this one group of people, the one group that you would think surely would receive the blessings of Abraham, would be cut off from it? That doesn't make sense at all. So the general state of unbelief and condemnation that continues to stand over most Jews doesn't make sense. And so Paul gives everyone concerned about physical Jews this point of hope In verse 25, he says, Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. In other words, the final word for the Jews will not be one of condemnation. Now, don't get me wrong. Every single Jew that has not come to Jesus is left with nothing but eternal punishment. The Great Commission, however, will be completed, whatever that means. And the Jews will not be left out in the end. They will be the final group to be one for Christ. When God finally wraps up the Great Commission, the Jews will be the capstone. They will be the final stone placed in the new temple of God, the church. Notice, though, Paul didn't say a word about the physical nation of Israel. This has nothing to do with politics or geography or anything like this. This is a promise that the last people group to be one for the gospel will be the Jews, whether those Jews are in Tennessee or Dubai or wherever. And just to be clear, let me say again that the gospel is for all nations and people, including the Jews, but that is always and only a blessing that is received through faith in Christ. This brings us to our last point, that the only division that ultimately matters before God is in or out of Christ. Even before the resurrection, Jesus lived his life in anticipation of tearing every division down. The Jews, like the rest of us, had all these really well-defined social norms and uh, different strata of society, 
Uh, some were legitimate and some were not, and Jesus starts cutting across the grain of those. The Pharisees were wanting to get in good with Jesus, and he turns around and eats with tax collectors and prostitutes, uh, as long as those sinners will make him their treasure, because he's the true vine. Uh, you remember when a woman with a history of rebelling against God washed Jesus' feet with her tears. Jesus said to the, his Pharisee host in Luke 7, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Jesus is telling them that the only thing that matters in the world... It's not your past, it's not your blood, it's not your social status. The only question is, did you love him? Jesus is what it's all about. And I want you to really understand that because it sounds like a cliche, but it's not. And uh, we really don't reject that. Don't say it flippantly. I mean, we need to go deeper into that understanding that Jesus is the answer. This nasty woman came in and found Jesus and gave everything to him, all her love and devotion, and he just hands her the kingdom. Your sins are forgiven. That's astounding. Ultimately, the only thing that matters is whether you know and love Jesus. If you do, the Spirit is your helper, the Father is your father, and the Son is your brother. If you have God... There is no way to go higher aside from a greater and greater experience of that reality. There is nothing he is holding back from you. And yet, every, tradition, uh, every Christian tradition has a way of making different tiers of Christianity. Like, well, you know, we've got believers, but then, you know, there are the really good believers who are, you know, super part of God's people and super near him. And that's just, you know, we have to reject that from the scripture. Maybe it's a question of whether you are a priest and a laity or a pastor and a laity. laity. Maybe it's whether you have been slain in the spirit or not. Maybe it's whether you or not you drink, smoke, or dance. As Presbyterians, we draw the line at whether or not you are a Presbyterian. Um, and, and, and then it's whether or not you're reformed enough. Um, that's how it is. How much does any of that matter, though? Okay, just get our perspective, and we need to do this a lot because automatically we're going to go into kind of our pride and our, uh, our standing in various ways instead of in Christ, and we have to think, how much does any of that matter compared to being with Jesus, to having Jesus in us and us in Jesus? It's nothing can even come close to that. Paul's, Paul tells us that there is no room for saying one type of Christian is better than another, In Galatians 3.28, he explains several of the major divisions that Christians let divide them. He says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for for you are all one in Christ Jesus. First, as far as being close to God, there is no Jew or Greek, it doesn't matter. That was, before Christ died, a legitimate distinction. Jews were closer than Gentiles, and Paul says that that's not how it works anymore. If God can pour out his Holy Spirit on a Gentile, then he, he's not holding back anything. He's, you've got God given to you as a gift, then he's not holding back anything from you. Um, 
Second, as far as being close to God, slave and free doesn't matter. It may matter in a lot of things. Your master may have a lot of advantages all through society. But in Christ's kingdom, in the church, we are all on equal footing before the cross. Of course, that would apply to all our kind of social strata as well. We should, the church should be a place where, you know, the homeless person and the rich man can sit on the same row. Third, as far as being close to God, male and female doesn't matter. Uh, men and women are not the same. They don't have the same roles in the church or the home. They typically are gifted by God with different temperaments, strengths, and perspectives, uh, which often leads to men and women despising and devaluing one another. But as far as the riches of eternal life go, both are the same, 100% the same in Jesus Christ. And you see both ideas together in 1 Peter 3, 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. So you husbands, you fathers, husbands, have to lead your wives with gentleness because, so you said, he said lead, that's not a dirty word in here, he lead your wives with gentleness because she is an heir of God's grace the same as you. There's no difference when it comes to that. This oneness in Christ is a reason that men, uh, you better do your jobs really well because you're not dealing with an inferior creature. Um, you're dealing with a joint heir of Christ, one of his uh, sisters. As far as nearness to God and eternal inheritance, you are on equal footing. Today we need to keep in mind that what brings us uh, what brings us in Christ, the promises and uh, what binds us in Christ, the promises and spirit of God are everything, and what divides us is nothing. For instance, blood is nothing compared to being united to Christ. Everyone in Christ wants their families to be bound together by the Spirit of God, and thankfully, he usually works that way. Of course, we know that that doesn't always happen. Sometimes we're on the edge of God's saving work in a family, and we find ourselves praying for our parents to come to faith as well. And sometimes children grow up and leave the faith. If being in Jesus is the most important thing in life, then it will either unite us together or create a significant wedge as Jesus told us in Matthew 10, 35, For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. But the good news is that Jesus doesn't create this distance and separation in our relationships and then leave us lonely. If our blood relationships aren't as close as we would like them to be because, of our, love, because our loved ones don't know Christ, Jesus himself provides us with a closer family. Jesus said in Mark 10, 29, Truly I, I say to you that there is no one, no one, that's a, no one who has left house or brother or sister or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time. In this time. God is not stingy. Let me just say that. Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with, with persecution. Always amazed me how he just threw that in there. And in the age to come, eternal life. This is one reason we need to bear with one another. We live in a time where people think you owe it to yourself to seek contentment by changing your circumstances, that somehow you're being like untrue to, 
the universe if you don't do that. Uh, sometimes we get lonely inside the church, and sometimes we feel left out. Um, sometimes we feel like we're the only person that holds this or that opinion. Discontentment can, can blind us to what we give up when we give up on a church. Here is where God, here is, where God is providing you, a close, you close family connections. If you will let the Spirit be what binds you to one another. That means believing that the Spirit can bind folks that don't have a lot in common. That means deciding that what we have in common in Jesus is infinitely more valuable than what we, dis- we disagree on. And that means looking for the person whom Jesus wants you to love and serve. There's a lot of excitement in switching churches, but we miss out on what God could create between us through decades of faithfulness. One other instance, nationality is nothing compared to being united in Christ. Jesus is bringing the nations to himself, so there's no room for ethnic bigotry. You know, who is it that's okay to hate today? Who, who, whom will I judge with less kindness? Whom will I treat with less sympathy? I met an immigrant when I was in college who turned out to be a Palestinian Christian. This man told me, speaking about Palestinian Christians, he said, Christians in America don't know we exist. They don't care about us at all. And there was nothing I could say to this man except what I did say, which is you are absolutely right. I don't think I've heard a single word of concern for Palestinian Christians uh, in my life coming from American Christians, at least up to that point. In fact, I, I feel confident saying that most Christians in America would rejoice if unbelieving Israeli soldiers were to completely empty the region of Palestinians without a thought for how that would affect our brethren living there, because they are, there are brethren living there. Now, at this point, because I know how my mind thinks, I know how your mind thinks, some of us uh, have started making incorrect assumptions about what my political agenda is And if you are, you've completely missed the point of what I'm saying. So you take the natural lines of loyalty and conflict that exist in every society, and the Bible often just cuts against the grain of all that. The world says, you believe A, or you must believe B. And very often the Christian has to say, I read the Bible, and both of those options are garbage. You know, so so hear me out. The Middle East is a mess. Uh, And I also feel that no one is particularly concerned with solving the mess in a just way. Those of us who know Jesus should be praying for conversion for Israeli and Palestinian alike. We should be praying for dignity, safety, and human rights for Israeli and Palestinian alike. There's no room for racism in the Christian life because racism forgets the gospel. Racism forgets that if our society has anything to offer the world, if our society has anything beneficial, any advancements, it's because of Christ's kindness to us. Racism forgets that our ancestors who did not yet know Christ were just as base as any tribe of people on the face of the earth. And racism forgets that Jesus is the Savior of the world, Abraham's blessing for all the nations. So in closing, remember, that this, remember this simple statement, I am the true vine, contains profound truths. Jesus is a faithful remnant of Israel. 
Jesus came to succeed where Israel failed, and when he died, Israel, the true Israel, died for the nations. Jesus is a resurrected Israel. When Jesus rose from the dead, a new Israel was born. And now membership in God's people is entirely a matter of do you know and love Jesus? This leads us to the profound realization that really there are only two types of people in the world. People say that all the time. Um, Elvis people and Beatles people. But um, you know, people say that all the time, but this is the, the real deal. The, the two type of people in the world are those who are connected to the vine and those who do not know, versus those who do not know God. The difference is the only distinction that will matter in eight million years. It's the only distinction that matters today. And so I, I hope you leave excited about the huge scope of what Jesus came to be and do for us, because there is nothing we can ever do to be more beloved by God in Jesus Christ. And that is one reason that we call this good news. Do you believe that? Let's pray. Father, thank you that we know Jesus. I pray that if there is anyone in this room who is not walking in faith in him, that you would turn them around. Father, thank you that even though our ancestors were far from you, bowing down to statues, serving demons, somewhere along the line you intervened in our destiny. Thank you for bringing us close to you. But not only that, your spirit is close to us and we are now able to live for you. Your spirit is uniting us together. We are being built into a temple that spans the globe. We are a city descending from heaven on a lost world. What a marvelous existence you have given us. What amazing promises. Thank you for choosing us. Please give us hearts that reflect the truth that we have learned today. And let us see Christ on every page of the Bible. Let us see your purpose for all nations on the earth. Help us have your love for those of every nation. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.